Okay. I forgot to turn the recorder on, but we just read Psalm uh, 85. Um, what, what are some initial overview things as you looked over it uh, the past few days? What are some things that strike you about the psalm? We're going to try to look to, to get uh, a reasonable outline of it, but what are some things that, that strike you, that catch your attention about Psalm 85? Okay, it does seem like, and of course, what 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 would you base that on? First one. First one. You've restored the captivity of Jacob, and um, we'll talk about that phrase in just a second. But I think that is probably a reasonable statement. Yes, Vicky. Well, the ESV says you restored the fortunes of Jacob. Yes. What yep. does your Well, the captivity. We'll talk about it in a moment. Talk about that phrase. So, you know, everybody, everybody be patient. We got a lot of excitement, excitement building about that verse. Okay, uh, what else? What, what are some other things you see? Forgave the iniquity of your people. Okay. You all have mentioned a couple of things. Christy mentioned restored the captivity or however it's translated. And forgave the iniquity. Do you see a difference between verses 1 through 3 and verses 4 through 6? Verses 1 through 3 are describing some of God's blessings upon the people. However, verse 1 is translated, whether it's restore the fortunes or restore the captivity, it is uh, an idea uh, of God blessing the people. But in verses 4 through 7, it seems like the people are in need of restoration again. It seems like there is some new crisis. Now that has led to different thoughts. Some have thought that verses 1 through 5 just describe what the people wanted, what the people wished for. And verses 4 through 7 describe their present circumstance. But, but this may be. Uh, even if we look at the historical books, when God's people came back from Babylonian captivity around 539 B.C., there seemed to be excitement. There seemed to be enthusiasm. They laid the foundation of the temple. Remember that? They laid the foundation of the temple. But some people are crying because that temple doesn't look as good as the former temple. And there is discouragement from without. People are trying to stop their work. And so when that happens, when that happens, all work on the temple ceases and the agricultural situation went backward as well, according to Haggai chapter 1. And so it may be the people have experienced some level of God's blessings in verses 1 through 3, but they still are in need of restoration. There's still a crisis that's come up since the deliverance of verses 1 through 3. One thing to notice, do you notice how verses 1 through 7 speak of God in second person? Oh 
Lord, you showed favor to your land. You restored, you forgave your people. You covered all their sins. You withdrew, verse 3. You turned away, verse 4. And he continues to address God. Restore us, O God. Cause your indignation towards the cease. But they address God in second person. Speaking of God is you and your. And then in verses 8 through 13, God is spoken of in third person. He is spoken about. He is not spoken to in the same way. And you notice in verse 3, or excuse me, verse 8, he will speak peace to his people, his godly ones. It is harder to come up with a title of verses 8 through 13, uh, but it seems to, uh, I got this title from a couple of places, it's an anticipation, anticipation of salvation. It's anticipation of salvation and God is revealed, God himself is revealed as all sufficient. God is able to meet whatever the crisis is because of his nature. I want you to pay close attention as we go through to how this text describes the nature of God. How does it describe God? We stated in studying the Bible, the first thing we need to look for, what does it say about God himself? What does it say about him? What does it say about who he is? And we'll find that in Psalm 85. What does it say about God? And then we'll see other things about what it says about our responsibilities to him. It's not as much emphasized along that line in this psalm and what it says about Jesus, of course. But any, any kind of preliminary statement right there. Somebody, somebody termed verses uh, 8 through 13 as patiently waiting for God's grace. Mm-hmm. Which fits... What you've written. Just yes, yes. It's a different, slightly different word. Even the same idea. Patiently waiting for God's grace. This God who is loving kindness and truth and righteousness and peace. Waiting for him to act. So that is a good way to say it. But it is a psalm of the sons of Korah. Just like Psalm 84 was. Uh, just like 87 and 88 will be. Korah is mentioned in the beginning. But, O Lord, you showed favor to the land. You restored the captivity of Jacob. Or you restored the fortunes of Jacob. As the ESV has. Now, uh, I'm going to discuss that uh, the best that I can. Really, um, this phrase is two forms A key word in the psalm, a key word in the psalm is this particular word. And it is often translated turn, return, sometimes even translated repent. Now let me show you how frequently this word appears in this psalm. 
When you have that phrase, restored the captivity or restored the fortunes, in verse 1, is two forms of the above word. Two forms of that word shoe. Then you have it used in verse 3. You turned away. You turned away your burning anger. It is used in verse 4. Restore us. And some of your translations may differ there in verse 4. But restore us. It is translated in verse 6. Again, it is translated in verse 8, turn back. Now, just even looking at this psalm will show you something of the variety of the word. It can refer to God turning away His anger. It can refer to people turning away from God, as in verse 8. It can refer to God bringing His people back. Now, whether we think of it geographically as bringing His people back or of God restoring their fortunes, in some way, God is bringing them back to a previous status and uh, verse verse 6 is asking God to restore and revive us again um, generally it's not translated again but it's still this word restore bring back but it can be used of God, it can be used of people, it can be used of turning to God, it can be used of turning away from God, it can be used of God turning people back to the land. It's just got a variety of uses. But this phrase, the reason for the difference in translation, and I'm, and I'm oversimplifying some because there has been some argument about the Hebrew here about this one with the words coming from a different root. But sometimes this kind of phrase is used and it obviously refers to bringing people back from captivity. For example, here's some cases of it referring to returning them back from captivity. In Joe, uh, excuse me, Jeremiah 30, verse 3, For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, the Lord says, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their forefathers, and they shall possess it. Now verse 18, the Lord says, Behold, I will restore the fortunes. I will restore the fortunes of the tent of Jacob. But in these passages, in these passages, in Jeremiah 30 verse 3, in verse 18, and there are other passages, to restore the fortunes, 
obviously refers to a return from captivity. It refers to a return from captivity. Now, sometimes it doesn't have to have that significance. In Job 42 and verse 10, when Job gets back everything he lost, the Bible says the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. So the phrase is used for God once again bringing him back his bringing him back to his wealth that he had previously experienced. So either translation there has something to commend it. Either translation, what uh, the New American Standard is basically giving the sense, and sometimes I recognize, I recognize I did this the other day in my roof class, uh, that sometimes I use that phrase dynamic equivalent, and I haven't, um, I haven't um, defined it, Sometimes a dynamic equivalent translation is basically what they think the meaning is, not the exact words. A more literal translation is more the exact words. Uh, you could argue neither of these, restoring the restoration is the exact word, uh, but, but, but this would be the difference between the translation. Does that help a little bit? That help a little bit, okay. Okay. Uh, but, O oh Lord, you showed favor to your land. You restored the captivity of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. The problem of the people was they needed a spiritual revival. And they needed a healing of their broken relationship with the Lord. God says, or the statement is made to God, you forgave the iniquity of your people and you covered their sin. Psalm 32 was a beautiful psalm that spoke of God's forgiveness, God's mercy and grace. Listen to how it starts. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. Their transgression is forgiven, their sin is covered, and he does not impute iniquity. And here he said, forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sin. The word forgave in verse 2 literally means to lift. But it's like the sins are lifted up. It's like it's a burden weighing a person down and God lifts up that burden and takes that burden away. That's the idea of God forgiving or God lifting or carrying our iniquity away. Remember, it was illustrated in the scapegoat when the high priest laid his hands on the goat and confessed all the sins of the people and the goat carried the sins into the wilderness. I believe it uses the same word in Leviticus 16, 21 and 22. But in verse 3, you withdrew all your fury, you turned away from your burning anger. Verses 3 through 5 are going to have much to say about God's wrath and about God's anger. And they are mentioned frequently in this psalm, in the same psalm that will stress his loving kindness 
and His truth. The Bible doesn't reveal those as inconsistent at all. But, but any questions right there about verses 1 through 3? We'll say, say more about that burning anger in just a moment. But, but any, any ideas right there? Any questions? Okay. In verses 4 through 7, I say restore us. It's a very abbreviated title here. But restore us, O God of our salvation, and cause your indignation toward us to cease. The English translations have something different than restore us. There at verse 1. Verse 4. First word of verse 4. It looks like a plea to God here to restore us. Um, but restore us, O God of our salvation. Cause your indignation to cease. Well, I thought God's burning anger turned away in verse 3. Well, it, it seems to have... But now it has manifested itself again. And then in verse 5, he says, Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Look at the different terms that he uses. God's fury in verse 3. God's burning anger in verse 3. In verse 4, God's indignation. Verse 5, be angry. In verse 5, will you prolong your anger to all generations? Now, when we talk about the character of God or the nature of God as revealed in Psalm 85, one of the things we can't miss, because it is so significant here, is what verses 5, 3 through 5 say about God's anger and God's wrath. Now, what I want to illustrate here, I'm going to mention several passages. But there's a point to this. Let me just write them down. I'll read them briefly. This translation uses, or this commentary uses the NIV. But I'm going to read from 74.1. I'm going to read from 77.9. And then 79, verse 5, 80, verse 4, and 89. Verse 46. Okay. Here's 74 verse 1. Why have you rejected us forever, O God? Why does your anger smolder against the sheep of your pasture? Psalm 77, 9. Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has He in anger withheld His compassion? 79 verse 5. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? How long will your jealousy burn like fire? Sounds like some of the verses here. Psalm 80 verse 4. O Lord God Almighty, how long will your anger smolder against the people of your the prayers of your people? And in Psalm 89 46, how long, O God, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Now, what I want to point out about these verses, all these verses, including 85, these are in book 
three of the psalm. Book three is Psalm 73 through 89. And book three is the most downtrodden book of the psalm. I think that it is sometimes described in personal struggles, as Psalm 73 does, but often it describes national struggles. There are more national laments in this book of the Psalms, even though it's the briefest of all the book of the Psalms, books of the Psalms, there are more national laments in this book than any other. As the nation is pouring out their grief, Again, it is just hard for us to imagine what impact 587 B.C. would have had on the Jewish people. They celebrated the land that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God had kept His promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we are living on the land God gave to the old. And the Babylonians come in and rip them off of the land. They rejoice in the promises of a king that God had given to David. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. They rejoiced in those promises. And now Zedekiah was removed from the throne by the king of Babylon. The king of Babylon kills his son. The last thing he ever sees. And then his eyes are put out. They rejoice in the temple that Solomon had built. As a place of worship between God and Israel. And it's been destroyed by the Babylonians who have come through blaspheming the true God. And and holding up signs to their gods. The wonder is that faith survived at all. How does it survive when it seems like all God's promises have collapsed? But it does survive. And God brings the people out of their situation, out of Babylonian captivity. It is like a resurrection from the dead, like Ezekiel 37 shows us. This is a valley of dry bones, and Ezekiel is asked, can these bones live? And the bones start snapping together, and then they're filled with flesh, and then the Spirit comes in them, and then they begin to live. And that's what's going to happen to the people. It's like a resurrection when they come back. And maybe when they came back from captivity, they think all our problems in the past, all our troubles are over. It is nothing but smooth sailing ahead. And they come back to the land. And they hit obstacles. The people are discouraged from within and there's opposition from without. And what do you do? It's amazing to me their faith survived at all. The experience of Babylonian captivity. But it did. It did. And But they pour out their grief. They pour out their problem. <clears throat> Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? It seems like who we are on the receiving end of what we view as God's anger or God's judgment, it seems eternal. Time seems to go in slow motion. 
You know, we talk about the brevity of life and how quickly life flashes by, and it does. It does. But generally when we make that statement, things are going pretty good because when there's trouble and difficulty, it kind of works for my past. Well, they go by. <laughs> but when we try to hold on to time, or something blessed happens, it slips quickly through our fingers like the rope is greased and we cannot get a grasp of it. And will your anger, will you be angry forever? And the plea is in verse 6, will you not yourself revive us again? By the way, I, and I know this is not a big problem among brethren, as it appears in some religious groups, but I think we're all infected with this idea. I, I, I don't see how some groups survive at all who just preach that kind of name it and claim it and you know, you just say to God, you know, confess you are rich and the, the Joel Osteen types of the world. I, I don't know how their churches survive. First time you have trouble, it, it kind of dismantles all your theology. But I do think, I do think we all, myself included, look at things that happen in the world and we think, how can this happen? In a world run by a holy and good God. Because it's just not what we would expect. Not expect in our own lives. Not expect in a group around us. But they pray to God for revival in verse, verse 6. Will you not yourself revive us again? Now, I would encourage you... If you make marks in your Bible, circle that you in verse, verse 6, because it is emphatic. There's a separate personal pronoun. Will you, not yourself, revive us again? The point is, if revival comes at all, if there is any answer for our distress, it's going to come by God. It's going to come from His power. If there's any answer. Will you not revive us again? And I'll tell you something I found really interesting. In Nehemiah 4.2, this same word for revive is used about uh, the, the, the enemy is mocking Nehemiah. And uh, in Nehemiah 4.2, in his efforts to rebuild the city of Jerusalem... Try to get the exact wording, but they're mocking his efforts to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And it says in Nehemiah 4.2, he spoke in the presence of his brothers to the wealthy men of Samaria. This is Sanballat. What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore themselves? Can they offer 
sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burnt ones? In other words, these burnt stones that had been destroyed when the city is destroyed and when the, the uh, walls around the city are destroyed, can they revive them? And just like God shows in the book of Nehemiah that He can revive those dead stones, here in Psalm 85 verse 6, He can revive this people as well. Will you not yourself revive us again? That your people may rejoice in you. I can remember first time I was kind of scandalized when I saw a a church that I would have worshipped with calling what they were doing a revival. And I thought, after a while, I thought we'd sing Revive Us Again. <coughs> Nobody objects to that. <laughs> we do find that expression used in Scripture. So, don't know that that's really a good objection. And after all, our meetings today are generally closer to revivals directed at the believers more than how we've defined gospel meeting is directed to the outsiders. And usually if I've just spoke speaking to somebody in the world, I, I use that language. I don't know if that language means anything to most of the world today. Because I don't know many people who relate to revival either. Um, shows us we're deeply in need of it. The world and us. But in verse 6, verse 7, Show us your loving kindness, O Lord, and grant unto us salvation. Now, we talked about the nature of God. We talked about the character of God as revealed in these psalms, in this psalm. And we talked about the anger of God. But another phrase that's going to be key in Psalm 85 is the loving kindness of God. That is translated differently in your versions. It's loving kindness in the New American Standard. It is uh, mercy in some of your versions. It is steadfast love in the ESV, I believe. Uh, so, but this is that word that we've mentioned 247 times in the Old Testament. 128 in the Psalms, if there is one word to summarize all God's attributes in the Old Testament, this may well be the best because it summarizes God's patience, God's long-suffering, God's mercy, God's grace, God's compassion, all of them rolled into one in this particular word, loving kindness, a word that is also being an important word, though used three times, only three times in the book of Ruth. But show us your loving kindness, O Lord. Grant us salvation. And then in verse 8, God is spoken about. Not to. He's not addressed as you and your as he is in verses 1 through 7. In verse 8, I will hear what God the Lord will say. For he will speak peace to his people, to his godly ones. But let them not turn back to folly. Just as God is asked to restore the people, the same word is used, the people are not to turn back to their folly. Don't turn back 
particular sin. No specific sin is mentioned in this particular psalm. But here we find that the crisis in verses 4 through 7 may well have been because of their sin, because of their foolishness. And he tells them that God will speak peace, but let them not turn back to folly. The fact that we have experienced the mercy and the grace of God is not a reason to give ourselves from sin. It is a reason for us not to return to folly. If we have experienced His grace so freely, we should not return to the foolishness that got us into the problem to begin with. As Paul asked in Romans 6 verse 1, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul says, may it never be. He will speak to his people, to his godly ones, let them not turn back. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. That glory, glory may dwell in our land. Now so many things here are worthy of so much attention. And, um, but glory dwelling in our land. Remember in the book of Samuel, Eli's grandchild is born at the end of 1 Samuel 4, and he is named Ichabod. And why is he named Ichabod? The glory has departed, 1 Samuel 4, 19-22. The, the glory has departed from Israel. It's particularly stated in the context of the Ark of the Covenant has been taken. The glory has departed from Israel. And what you see in the book of Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapters 8 through 11, I'll try to get down the exact verses here, but, but in Ezekiel 8 through 11, what God shows Ezekiel is a vision of the glory of the Lord leaving the city of Jerusalem and leaving the temple. Yes, wouldn't you know it that most of my Ezekiel notes are in my other Bible. Oh man. But it's four times. One of them is Ezekiel 10 verse 4. Ezekiel 10, 4, Ezekiel 10, verse 18, and Ezekiel 10, 4, 10, 18, 11, 22, and 23. Now what this shows is God's glory departing from the temple. Ezekiel's message is in the first 24 chapters that Jerusalem's going to be destroyed and the temple's going to be destroyed and the people are saying, how can that happen? Because God dwells there but He is showing that the glory of God has left the temple. He has left the building. In, in effect, God has. God's glory has. But but. This may tie, this may tie this psalm, verse 9, and several other factors with the second building of the temple. But in verse 9, back to Psalm 85, 9, Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. 
the glory that glory may dwell in our land. Loving kindness and truth have met. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Loving kindness, we're talking about God's character, God's all-sufficient character. We see God's anger and wrath. We see His loving kindness. We see God's truth. Now, how do some of your other versions translate truth? Okay, it, it, righteousness will be a different word. Some of your versions may have faithfulness. Yeah, faithfulness. I do think here faithfulness probably better conveys the idea of that word. Um, because it's not just that God is truthful, God is honest. God is, God is that, yes. And that's kind of the bottom line of the word. But, but God is faithful. If God says something, He is going to do it. Yeah, I can remember having a teacher at school who gives this detailed and difficult assignment in, in junior high. And, 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 and all of us were sweating. And it dawned on me. And I said to those around me, I said, Brother, I said, it just hit me. He has never followed through with one of these things. All year long. He has sometimes come down and laid down the law and he's forgotten the next day. And that's exactly what happened with that assignment. Assignment we knew all of us were looking at each other and we were going to fail. But you did that assignment anyway, though, didn't you? No, I did. <laughs> and I will say I was a Christian, Vicki. I was a Christian then and just had become one. But I, I realized. This is never going to happen. But if you were right, they would all have been mad at you. It's <laughs> <laughs> well, the truth. It's Tommy's fault. But um, anyway, faithful. When God says it, though, it's a different story, isn't it? Even if it seems to have failed. Now. Uh, he also mentioned the word righteousness. And did you notice how prominent that word was? It's in verse 10, verse 11, verse 13. Righteousness, loving kindness, faithfulness, righteousness, and peace. Peace is used in verse 8 and verse 10. Now we think of peace As a result of God being who He is. It's a result of His loving kindness and faithfulness and righteousness. We experience peace. But, but anyway, all of these qualities, look at how this verse says it. Loving kindness and truth have met together. Loving kindness and faithfulness have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. All these attributes are going to come together for deliverance of God's people. Truth or faithfulness springs from the earth. And righteousness reaches down from the heavens. It's like it's sprouting up from the earth like a plant growing. And often that word sprout does refer to, to plants growing. It's sprouting up and, and from heaven it is coming down. And 
Truth is springing from the earth and righteousness is coming down from the heavens. Or maybe as Jesus said, pray that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this uses the merism of earth and heaven to talk about God's glory and God's truth and God's righteousness permeating the universe. In verse 12, God, though indeed the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its produce. Remember in the book of Haggai in chapter 1, there was a famine, there was a drought, there was a famine. The people sowed much, but they harvested little because they hadn't built the temple of the Lord. The Lord promised in that chapter that He would provide in, in chapter 2, particularly, of Haggai. But here, the Lord is going to give you what is good. Our land will yield its produce. Verse 13, righteousness will go before Him and will mark His footsteps into a way. Now, this is an interesting expression. Is righteousness leading God? Or is God leading righteousness? Just looking at this verse, the wording is righteousness is going before him. It's like it's leading him. But obviously, we know it is the God, the God who is righteous. And all his footsteps are righteous and holy. God does what is right. Now, those two phrases, particularly these first two, Loving kindness and truth. There can be a lot of connections made with Exodus 32 through 34. Uh, Marvin Tate in his commentary in the Word Biblical series gives about five that can be made. But listen to how the Lord describes himself. The Lord, the Lord God, passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. Same thing Exodus 34 verse 6 says about God, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands. That same kind of thing is emphasized here. Loving kindness, truth, righteousness, peace. They kiss each other. So, it doesn't directly address how long the problem will last. It doesn't directly address what God is going to do. But it shows us God's character as the answer to this question. That's why we try to make God the key character of our Bible study. Because it will be the ultimate answer to every problem we face. Uh, uh, Mary? The New King James verse 13 says, Righteousness will go before him and shall make his footsteps our pathway. Our pathway. Okay. Following these steps. Okay. The New Living says righteousness goes as a herald. Say that again. Uh, righteousness goes as a herald. As a herald. 
Meaning it goes before it's pronouncing. Okay, if you're just going to translate this like word for word, it's, it's the text I'm looking at. I don't know what kind of variants there are that may have are. It has the hour in italics. Okay, it does. Okay, but but I would just translate this like the, and say righteousness before him walks or goes, and he prepares the path of the way his steps. So. Um, that, that's that's uh, I, I think like a word like a herald there would be a it, it would be a dynamic equivalent kind of idea that you know that that's some, herald goes before it announces something and that's that's the basic idea but not so much the exact word and um, and I don't know what other translations may other ancient translations I didn't notice particularly what they did with that. But any questions about the psalm in particular? Anything that you would ask for about the psalm? So you see in verses uh, 10 and 11 all of those characteristics belonging to God? Yes. So yes. Uh, is, there, is there any possibility that there is a... a, a an idea of God and man meeting together, because because he says uh, in in eleven that truth springs from the earth mm -hmm. and righteousness looks down from heaven. You've got loving kindness and truth that meet together. You've got righteousness and peace that kiss each other. I don't know. Okay. Okay. Um. I do take it as a reference to God. Um, the term loving kindness in particular, and I put up there how frequently it's used, most, all of those times, not every one of them, but most, of a, a vast majority of those deal with God's loving kindness with man. Couple of places, just a couple of places, it refers to man's devotion to God. One of those places is Jeremiah 2 verse 2. Go and proclaim in the ears of Jerusalem saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember concerning the devotion of your youth. Uh, and the word devo translate devotion is the same Hebrew word translate loving kindness. But Jeremiah 2 2 uses a term to describe the people's relationship to God. There are other passages they use the term to refer to man's relationship with man. For example, in Hosea 4.4, 4, there is no, there's swearing, deception, murder, and stealing. They employ violence and bloodshed. Um, there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. I believe that's Hosea 4, 1 through 3 that I'm summarizing. When the Bible says kindness, I do believe... Okay, I don't have that part of the Old Testament with me, but I think that might be the word 
loving kindness or faithfulness. But sometimes it does refer, John, to man's relationship with man. But, but, but by and large, it is man's relationship with, with God. Or, or, or excuse me, God's, God's love toward man is the way that this word is used most of the time. Now, I, I haven't been thinking of it in terms of, uh, and certainly man needs to respond to God's loving kindness by his devotion, as Jeremiah 2, 2, verse 2 says. But usually the stress of this word is on the character and nature of God. I don't know if that helps or answers all you're saying. Um, Phil? One idea, kind of going along with what you said about verse 9. Mm-hmm. Uh, Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that the glory may dwell in our land. I note that in um, New English, when God delivers his people and renews his relationship with them, he will once more reveal his royal splendor in the land. And then verses 10 and 11, to be kind of describe that royal splendor being displayed. That's a good point. That, 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 yeah, that may be a good, a good way to say it. Remember when God told Moses, pray, show me your glory. And he said, no man can see my face and live. But then it's the next chapter where he says, the Lord, the Lord God... And he emphasizes loving kindness and truth. The closest we can get to seeing the glory of God in this life is the type thing that Psalm 85 verse 10 says. And so that, that's right, that, that, that step from the glory in verse 9 to God's character revealed in 10 through 13, that may be an important tie in. It's a good thought. What, what else do you see? There are four references to the land or the earth. Yes, yes, that's right. Go ahead and mention them, John. Well, it's in verse 1. Yes. Uh, then we see it again in verse 9, uh, verse 11, and verse 12. And yes. It's all, it's all the same word. Yes, it is. Sure is the same word. So, yes. Thank you very much for that. Uh, I appreciate that in verse 1 it refers to it as your land, but then it says our land. Yes. In verses uh, in verse nine and twelve. Yeah. Yes, exactly. You're exactly right. It's your land, but God gave it to the people, and therefore it has become, you know, our land. As one writer says, it's no less our land because it was your land, uh, because it is His land. He gives it uh, to His people. Here. So you're seeing eleven again, as you said, as merism, not as in contrast. Yes, I think it is. I think it is a merism that the whole earth basically is filled with His glory. Like the uh, the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I think that's used several places. I think Isaiah eleven verse nine is one of them. And uh, I was going to see if I had some other passages, John, that 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 use this kind of language. Um, I was thinking that there was, and I think I haven't written them down, but I think there are some passages like this about these qualities mentioning meeting from heaven and earth. I'm thinking of Psalm 36, and let me see if this applies. I'm not seeing this in my notes, but, but okay. But Psalm 36, verses 6 and 7, verses 5 
said, Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches the sky. Your righteousness is like the mountains. Your judgments are like the great deep. That's the type of thing I was thinking about. Psalm 36, 5 and 6. Thank you. Okay. Psalm 85 and Jesus. How do we... How will we tie it to Evelyn? Okay. In verse 3, he was showing mercy. He said he was turned away from the wrath of the angels. Okay, now I didn't hear everything you said. You're probably going to turn away his wrath, and, mm-hmm. and, and so you're making He's that point. showing mercy. He's showing mercy. <coughs> Are you making an application to Jesus or just kind of general? Um, just for the points, not for Jesus. Okay, okay. But that is a very important point. God, one of the ways God shows mercy and grace is to turn away his own anger. So that's right. That is right. Well, how do you tie this psalm to Jesus? How do you tie it to Jesus? Micah? Maybe a little indirectly. Um, another point from previous. Um, verses 4 and 5, I can see a connection with the tail end of Lamentations. Okay. Whenever, whenever it says, um, yeah. Why do you for, uh, forget us forever and forsake us for so long a time? Turn us back to you, O Lord, and we will be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are very angry with us. And so perhaps Jesus is the answer to those laments. Uh, very good, very good. Yes, I, I, yeah, I don't know the best way to sum that up. You did very well with it, but but the questions like, will you be angry forever are answered via the cross. So, as Jesus dies on the cross, God demonstrates his anger against sin in a way to save those of us who are sinners. And I think that's the idea too of propitiation. Uh, Romans 3, 21-26. Propitiation, and there's, there's argument about all these things, believe me. A lot of argument. But I think the best way to look at it is the turning away of anger at the offering of a gift and propitiation. We had no gift to offer that was big enough and great enough to turn away our sin, to take away our sin. And so God, the offended party, offers the gift to remove his own anger. Now that would be like you've offended somebody or somebody has offended you and they've done something terrible to you and so in order to pay their debt you pay it not then and that's what God does for each of us in Christ and uh, that, that, that is a good um, description there are a lot of things here that you can word in a way to apply to Jesus what, what else do you see? Okay. Verse 7, your loving kindness and grant of salvation. 
So certainly the greatest ever, first of all, the word loving kindness that's used in 7 and 10, the ultimate display of God's loving kindness is the cross. The ultimate display is the cross. And when it begs God, grant us salvation. The word salvation is used a couple of times in, in this psalm. It's used in verse 7. Uh, where else am I missing it? Nine. Nine? Verse 9? Yes. And grant us salvation, certainly answered by the cross. Grant us salvation. What else? In the ESV, salvation is used in verse 4 to restore us again, O God, of our salvation. Yes, yes it is. It is in the New American Standard as well. I just missed that. I thought it was, I thought it was another time. There, there it is, right? Along with the references to the cross, I would think right away of verse 2. Okay, yeah, exactly. Forgiving our iniquity, covered our sin. You know, the passage that we read earlier in Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. How blessed is the man whose, whose transgression is for, iniquity is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Uh, how blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Uh, that passage of Psalm 32, 1 and 2, is quoted in Romans 4, verses 6 through 8, and the overall argument of Romans shows it comes to the cross. But yes, it's through the cross our sins are covered. It's through the cross our iniquity is forgiven. All the Bible ultimately is pointing to that particular event. And um, think about verse 9. That glory may dwell in our land. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory as of the glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. We beheld His glory. The glory may dwell in our land. And the statement, now think about this. It says in verse 8, for he will speak peace to his people. He will speak peace. The word peace is used in verse 8 and in verse 10 of this psalm. The word peace. Think about the announcement of the angels at his birth. Peace among men. Think about in John 20. And the resurrection, when Jesus appears to the disciples, He says, Peace to you. And the Bible tells us in Ephesians 2, in verses 14 through 17, it uses this term peace a lot because Jesus has made peace between God and man. He, he also makes peace between groups that were formerly hostile and alienated to one another. Jews and Gentiles. He came speaking peace, preaching peace to them. So, Jesus 
brings peace. But in a way, all these qualities in verse 10 and 11, God's loving kindness, God's faithfulness, God's righteousness, God's peace, they kiss each other. There's a, I can remember, a con, I remember this conversation vividly because I thought, oh, this person, he was quoting from a book about the cross and he talked about how this book was so helpful to him. And he said, loving kindness and faithfulness kissed at the cross. And I thought, whoa, that is such awesome wording. <laughs> and I realized as I look back at that book, which I also had, it's getting it from Psalm 85. You know, God knows how to word things. Um, and isn't that true of the cross? That God's loving kindness and faithfulness meet? God's righteousness and peace have kissed each other? Righteousness can refer to God's salvation, God's vindication, God's vindication of those who are innocent. It can refer to God being a righteous and holy person. In all those senses, it's met at the cross in a way, isn't it? Those who are forgiven can be pronounced righteous. And God is a righteous God, cannot simply let sin pass, but punishes it in a way to show how horrible it is. And yet at the same time, to open up a door of salvation to all who would humble themselves before Him. Righteousness and peace kiss at the cross. Could the same, could the same thing be said about verse 11? Truth springs forth from the earth and righteousness yes. looks down from heaven. Yes. Yes, it can. Absolutely. 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 You know that in a sense, as he dies on earth and the Father watches from heaven, that, that everything in all the universe, in a certain sense, I think I'm referring to Colossians 1, I think it's going to be, is set right. It's set back on course, on the proper, proper track. I don't know that I do a good job right here summing up how all these things are fulfilled in Jesus, but I, I think you can see it, that all these attributes of God, all these things, like, like in what Philip just said, Phil just said in verses 11, verse 11, all of these things you know, show us that these things are fulfilled in Christ, in the cross, and... Um, in his in the salvation he brings thank you very much for for this um